Here he is. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So, what's going on? Uh, well, let me just explain with some sartorial memories of uh, many years back. Okay, so I'm going to stand up so you can see it. Okay. You see All it? Right. All right. All right. It's, you're going uh, to have to knock it. You know, Leo, yeah. Sal, Leo Sal was uh, June the 3rd, 1989, which is where this t-shirt is coming from. Um, on that day, actually a day later, and we remember is more as the June the 4th rather than June the 3rd, I participated in a large student demonstration in support of uh, uh, the victims of the brutality of the Beijing regime. In many ways, it was my uh, political baptism, I'd say, that never mm. ceased to be. Uh, it's always mattered uh, to me what happens there in student movements in China have a long history going back to 1919. Maybe you'll have a chance to refer to this because students are a big part of what's, what happened uh, between Friday and uh, Monday morning in China. And 43 different cities or 43 different places in 22 cities, right? So that's, that's what we know. Uh, we know it from scraps of videos that we saw. It reminds us how large this country is. Because while in Southern Mongolia, people are demonstrating in deep snow, somewhere in the middle of, I don't know, Xi'an, maybe it was, or maybe further south, uh, this looked like late fall with golden leaves. Then you had pictures from Chongqing or Guangzhou, uh, which looked more tropical. So obviously widespread. What is the root of this? I'm going to use these events to um, give you like a grid of analysis to understand revolts, popular revolts, and the chances of these popular revolts transmuting into something more. As we have watched the developments in Iran over the last uh, couple of weeks, of course, in China right now, who knows, maybe one day in Russia too in our lifetime. So it's a, it's a useful grid. It's syncretic, I admit, pull different things from different levels, but given the history of uh, upheavals in China, I think it's it's applicable and also in the case of Iran. So before I get there to this sort of more analytical uh, level, let me just uh, briefly explain why it happened really. During the party congress, there was a call to optimize COVID policies. And they came up with 20 points to optimize. As you know, China opted for zero COVID, so it's very different from what other countries have done, or at least at this level of rigidity is very different. In the West, we have a choice between let's live with this, this is what Sweden did in 2020, famously, or let's flatten the curve, if you still remember how it yes. But zero COVID was very unusual. A little bit of other East Asian countries toyed with that for a while, South Korea, Taiwan, and Japan. Um, it's long over. It never was as strict as in case of PRC. And so those 20 measures actually went on the, on the government's website to check those 20 measures. It's mind boggling. You can't really understand much. And I'm not surprised that the public officials in the provinces in China cannot really figure it out. So give me an example. One of the measures to optimize the COVID policy is to change the the quarantine when you move around the country from 
seven days in the facility and three days at home to five days in the facility and three days at home. Revolutionary, right? This is going to change everybody's life. Or your codes on your cell phone, uh, there, there, it's gonna, there are three like high risk, medium risk, low risk. We're going to simplify it. It's going to be only high risk and low risk. Well, how is that going to help, right? And the rest is really kind of world in this typical Chinese, very kind of woolly communist dogmatic language that usually leaves a lot of room to officials to implement different policies. The problem is here we have policies over something that's completely uh, undercut socioeconomic activity in the country for three years now. And so what the officials are doing, the officials are in sort of like a prisoner dilemma between their actions, open or not open, lockdown or not lockdown, and the reaction, not the, of the other prisoner, but of the virus itself. Yes. Not cooperate with the virus. You're going to just minimize your perceived risk. So what do you do? If you decide, well, I'm going to actually reopen, you have two options. First, everything goes fine and the virus doesn't spread. And maybe you get promotion if everything goes fine. Perfect. But if the virus spreads and you reopen, you lose your job. But if you don't reopen, regardless of what the virus does, you take no responsibility, just the virus. Yes. So you, the minimax strategy in prisoner's dilemma, you always will choose not reopening because it's a lower risk. You'd rather forego a promotion, but avoid being fired. Is yes. that official? And this is what, of course, they did. And there were a lot of kind of ramshackle lockdowns all around as some of the areas began to read the optimization as relaxation. And that means fast spread of the Omicron virus for which the Chinese have no immunity. They don't have immunity because they've been relying on their homegrown vaccine. There are three vaccines. The most important of those is Sinovac. We know from other countries, not least in Africa, that they don't work for Omicron. Mm. There is no immunity in the country. And the best place, the best jurisdiction that you can actually compare Sinovac with mRNA uh, Western vaccines is Hong Kong, where 87% of hospitalizations are people with Sinovac vaccine, right? Mm. So it shows you the comparative validity uh, of, of this vaccine. When Ola Schultz was in China three weeks ago, I think, with this baby of industrialists, he offered Moderna mRNA vaccine to China because, of course, it's in, in the interest of business for China to reopen. But the right. problem is that there's been so much national pride vested well, in the Admit that your vaccine is yeah, and the Western is better. No, no, no. We we triumphed under Xi Jinping, Xi, Xi Shuang thought, right? Under, under Xi Jinping's thought and his great leadership, we actually vanquished this thing three years ago. So you're not going to admit that, number one. Number two, market share. A lot of communist officials are invested in Sinovac. You're not going to lose it. So what did the Chinese ask? The Chinese ask, okay, bring us Moderna stuff, but with... Um, uh, with all the data. So we want the intellectual property coming with this, right? We know how it all ends in China, right? So yeah. of course, no mRNA um, R&D department will decide for whatever strategic reasons to give away the, uh, the IP. Therefore, Sinovac. Uh, we're down to that. We're down to, you know, CPU units, which are very low compared to other Asian countries, 
100,000 uh, inhabitants, more or less half of the level that Taiwan has. And so there is a risk that this thing spreads, especially among over 60-year-old uh, Chinese citizens. Therefore, we, we think about 60 million of them are completely um, not immune, didn't have boosters. So even Sinovac is not entirely spread. So there is a serious concern in terms of health preparedness. But now what we saw, and this brings me to the grid of analysis, is a very quick spread, dramatic spread from, we don't want lockdowns anymore. Naturally, people are exhausted after three years of this, to xiatai, xiatai, step down. Xia, down, tai means platform or stage. The first character of Taiwan, by the way, Bay, platform Bay. Um, and so step down, step down Xi Jinping, step down CCP. Now, how do we go from a revolt that's about, you know, let's reopen my neighborhood. I want to go, I want to work. I want to be able to shop for groceries and function normally. As by the way, the people who watch the World Cup realize the world is functioning, right? Most people in the stands in Qatar are not wearing even masks and right. having a lot of fun and players are playing. And here in our country, we have to wear hazmat suits and there are accidents. People get burnt alive in, in buildings that are locked on buses, busing people to quarantine, uh, go off the road because drivers have to wear hazmat suits and they don't see the road. I mean, one disaster after another. Humiliation. That's unpleasant. And so. Let's just take this case and analyze you know, when the revolt takes a different meaning. So there are three, three factors that you have to take into account. The first one is self-interest. The second one is systemic issues. And the third one is a catalyst. So what is the self-interest? Well, let's focus for a moment on students who are very active over the weekend in various cities. Self-interest is purely about the risk benefit of revolting against usually deteriorating conditions and deteriorating prospects. Mm -hmm. We've all gone through this pandemic longer or less, but of course, young people suffer more because they tend to lose their best years, as we say. And the prospects for students in China because of economic collapse have deteriorated markedly over the last, last three years. So not only are they locked in their dorms and unable to interact, but also it's no longer, you know, I'm going to um, graduate and then get a job in an international company or somewhere and everybody is making money and there's economic growth and buy an apartment, whatever. You can't buy an apartment because it's overpriced. Can't find a job with 20% unemployment among graduates. You can at best try and get a job with the government, but at 25% of the salary that you thought you would have gotten three years ago before the crackdown on the tech business, before the crackdown on educational facilities, private educational facilities, and so on. So prospects are generally bad. So that's, but that's self-interest, right? That's something economic and hence this, this, uh, this whole movement of ping tongue. So lying flat, general passivity of the, of, of the younger population. But then there are also the systemic issues. The systemic issues is when there is this shift from, I don't want to lock down to step down. Now, why is this happening? Aren't Chinese people just simply politically passive? Don't they just support the, the, the government that um, lifted, what is this? 
800 million people from poverty, 600, whatever the uh, left-wing shills will tell you in the West, pick their number. Well, the issue here with systemic matters, the systemic problems is what Timur Kuram calls uh, preference falsification. So what is preference falsification? He gives an example is when you go to a, a party, let's say a, a, a cocktail party, and you find that food is actually very bland and not exciting, you know, then I just come up to the lady, the housewife and say, you know what, this food actually <laughs> really sucks. You know, I gotta do it. There's certain social norms and you're gonna just live with the situation. Right? Yes. That facilitates the preservation of the existing order. Even if the structure is disliked, you're gonna let it be. And it actually confers an oral ability to a larger context, structures which are otherwise vulnerable to a sudden collapse because it's enough for two or three of you to say, this is not so good. Maybe you're still gonna stay for a while. You're not gonna sell, but you're gonna leave this place and you're not gonna come to the next, right? So people misrepresent their wants, kind of faking support for a given structure and especially, let's say, a government, especially if the cost, the social cost of this opposition are too high. So could we, could we substitute for the word cost, the word pain? Yeah, there is an emotional element to this, absolutely. And that's because of socialization. I come to this in a moment. Okay. But, you know, when, when the support for that structure, be it um, the regime, be it the tradition, be it, you know, the, the structures in the society, given policy, when it's contrived, then even a minor catalyst, and catalyst is the third element of this model that I'm proposing, may activate a process which kind of may generate even a massive movement, right? And, and an anticipated change. So it's important that something feasible, but it could be something small uh, that, that offers this, this um, catalyst, this opportunity to finally realize, well, it is pretty disgusting. Why am I going along with that? Governments, the states, especially now in 21st century, when they are equipped with very good uh, control mechanisms, know this well, and they will make their utmost, avoid that spillover from the self-interest issues to the systemic issues. Why? Because historically we know when the systemic issues are triggered, the revolt, all it needs is some symbolic signals of the atmosphere opening a little bit. So people are now kind of more open to say that actually this is not such a good part, right? That leads to a cognitive revolution. Usually it has to be coming from top down. So someone with authority is saying, well, actually, it's not great. Let me take an example from the Iranian uh, uprising, right? In Qom, very, very conservative uh, city where Khomeini uh, was based, two dreamt Ayatollahs, Ayatollah Hasadollah Bayat Sanjani and uh, Ayatollah Muhammad Jarad Alevi Burajerdi, they both came with the view that the government is not offering what it should, and what it should is compassion. Not mm. crackdown, but compassion. That was immediately picked up by, especially the, you know, the Persians, so not the ethnic minorities, they're fighting for their own reasons right. now, the regime, but the Persian group, when it's coming from Qom, I remember by being in Qom, and in our group there was a lady, and a foreign lady, and she had a little wisp of hair sticking out from under her chador, and it was dark, 
It was late in the evening, standing outside a mosque, waiting to be separated between men and, and women. And some, some local man comes up to her and says, in decent English, says, please hide your hair. This is the law of the land. This is calm. This is, this is the atmosphere. And he was not from Basij. He was not a revolutionary guard. He was not uniformed. He was not armed. He was just passing on his way to, to, to uh, the mosque. Um, and that, so it's a signal. It's a signal that gives additional fuel to the aspirations, that there's something, there's some softening, that there's some disagreement in the regime, that different people may have different views on how to tackle the crisis. Clearly, 1980s, that was the case in China. So before this T-shirt, um, during the um, leadership of Hu Yaobang, he was a more liberal head of the Communist Party, and there were professors, Fang Lijie was a famous professor of astrophysics who openly supported students on many occasions. They were the first, the first movement was in 1980, then 1986, 87, and finally famously in 1989. But they took place and took their, uh, their, their, their volume and their importance because especially students are very attuned to minute changes in, in that political atmosphere which allows for that cognitive revolution and this uh, the getting rid of that falsification preference, right? So that is, that is something that requires some opening. And as long as there is no opening, and there is no opening in Putin's Russia, and there is no opening in Khamenei's, and there is certainly no opening in Xi Jinping's China, the governments know it, and they will not allow for any of these signals of some disagreement or minute change to filter to the people. So this was the second element of the analysis. Now let me focus on the third element, which is the catalyst. So on the surface, the catalyst for these events was this terrifying fire in Urumqi, which is a city in Xinjiang. Now Xinjiang, we always associate with the Uyghur people, but Urumqi has been sinicized. So it's majority Han Chinese. By the way, most of Xinjiang, 25 million people, of which only about, I think, 12 million are Muslims, mostly Uyghurs and Kazakhs, and the rest are migrants from uh, coastal China. Urumqi is predominantly Chinese, so very likely that these people who died in that conflagration were ethnic Chinese, which might have actually helped with that feeling of solidarity in distant cities on the coast. But why is this catalyst? Sometimes the catalysts are anniversaries important anniversaries in Chinese history in the case of China. Sometimes it's death. Guess what? Jiang Zemin died today, former president of China. We'll see how that leads into the, the uh, discontent because it was the death of Hu Yaobang in, 19, in April of 1989 that led to this event, eventually, to the first demonstrations and, and this event. So, so the, the Chinese people are very, again, very attuned to, to, to those symbolic moments. So what are those catalysts? Catalysts are something that brings a sense of, in French, there's a term, anomie. So uh, Jochheim, a structuralist sociologist, created this term, anomie, so lack of normals. What is normals? In Greek, normals is certain order, certain regularity, regularity of laws, social order, and political order as well and allows you to kind of decide what are the rights and obligations of various, of various participants in the, a certain uh, collectivity. So anomie is the opposite of this. This is lack of disorder. 
mm-hmm. not a symbolic breakdown of, of those, those various legal norms and they are felt as unbearable for a group of people. Death is this typical trigger, death, symbolic death. In this case, death of people who are trapped in an apartment, most likely were trapped because the authorities bolt the uh, uh, doors of the buildings. I mean, I saw it for the first time, I think early this year during the Shanghai lockdown, and it scared me because China is an earthquake country. Right. You know, three of the eight most deadly earthquakes in the 1900s occurred in China including mm-hmm. the one in Sichuan in 2008 or Tangshan earthquake in 76, I think, 300,000 people. So if you cannot leave a, a falling building, that's a pretty bad story. There was a little tremor somewhere in summer and people were trapped, realized they couldn't get out of the building. The fire escape was also bolted. It was, it, it was closed, it was locked. And so Let from me- the outside, so you can't get out from your apartment. Apparently uh, that's part of the anger because of that, you know, those otherwise avoidable deaths. I want to I want to just jump in here for a minute, because if you haven't seen pictures of what Thomas means by bolted, literally workmen in hazmat suits would come through the building and do things like drill a hole in the cement in front of your door and put a piece of rebar in it, or they would drill a hole in the wall in front of your door and put a piece of rainbar in it. We can go online and see this. So they're literally, well, when I heard locked, I thought they were just locking the door somehow. They're physically creating these sort of barbaric forms of entrapment. Yeah. And, you know, if it was an electronic lock, they could unlock everybody's apartment at the same time if there was a fire. This was... This was like, it almost like out of the Middle Ages, it seemed yeah, like. Yeah, it was indeed, because well, I saw cases of uh, doors being cemented over. Yes. And then the most insane, and, and so it gets to, you might be coming to this anyway, but I'm going to ask now, since, I, since I've already stopped you, I always had the impression, and maybe I got this idea from you, that part of the reason China was so focused on this zero COVID policy and these extreme lockdowns was, to train people to get used to being more obedient and trapped inside their homes as just a form of political control. And yes, this, is, this is the view that actually comes out of China often or from the Chinese periphery, uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, where people interact more closely with, with people in China, despite all the hurdles, is that this is actually, COVID is um, an excuse Yes. increase that level of control. Why is that? Because I spoke about normals and, and lack of normals, order and lack of order. Lack of order, we understand in the West is chaos, right? Chaos. But chaos, the Greek chaos, so something in, in, in the Middle Eastern cosmogony, like Mesopotamian myths and so on, that preceded creation. So not the Christian tradition, but in all the other tradition, traditions there, Creation came after chaos. Chaos was this murky, dark, impenetrable, liquid uh, space, boundless space. That's not chaos in China. For uh, the Chinese word for chaos is Luan. And there's always a choice whether you prefer Luan or you prefer Si. Si is death. And often death 
the single death is preferable to Luan. But Luan is very different from chaos. I said chaos, our Greek chaos is sort of impenetrable. I just uh, painted Luan, Luan in Chinese, right? So that, that part is, uh, comes from combing something very entangled. It's a very busy character, 13 strokes. It's a very busy moment. The business in a crowded place, at least in the Chinese context, is understood as the ultimate evil. And so an epidemic brings the threat of this one, of this ultimate disorder, of this ultimate anomie. And there is a very strong push by the CCP to always avoid Luan at all costs, even if it means some deaths. The problem is deaths themselves generate the sense of breakdown in the meaning that people generate for themselves of how the society functions. And that shows that the socialization, and we had you know, a couple of months ago, a series of, of um, shows here talking about indoctrination. You might remember indoctrination in Soviet Union, yes. indoctrination in communist China, indoctrination in Putin's Russia, and so on. That socialization, of course, is showing its cracks, right? It's not perfect because in starting first, what is a society? Society, it's a sense of meanings. We have a couple of meanings in our, in our heads, and then we contribute to create something, some objective reality with our hands and our energy to the world. And then it comes back to us as a reality and as a reality, it imposes itself upon us. So it's in the interest of those regimes to start the socialization really, really early. You know, unlike giraffes that fall from four feet when they are born and 10 minutes later are on their feet themselves, something I watched once with interest, you know, we spend about two years before we can walk, much less right. communicate. And so big part of our becoming fully integrated human being happens in the society. There is the social socialization that happens then. Not entirely. There's consciousness that's still going to precede all the other elements coming with the language and, and, and the behavior and behavioral rules, but it, it, it's, it's part of us being sure it's being a social person. And so the success of a society to impose itself on, on someone is not only in those devices, you know, that the Chinese Communist Party uses all the time to control the people, and they will definitely could pick up those ringleaders who will be identified after what happened over, over the weekend. But the society is successful when it imposes itself on us as a reality, that reality that, in this case, Chinese Communist Party decides, right? So it's a reality, for example, well, I hate Japan, right? It's going to be one reality. Or, you know, the U.S. is trying to stop us from rising, right? Or Chinese Communist Party lifted whatever millions out of poverty and, and so on and so forth. These elements, these elements of organized universe. And so it's taken not as a set of objective baited meanings, but we identify, when we are constantly trying to identify ourselves with that reality, we shape by that reality and the structures of the world kind of determine partly the subjective structures of our consciousness. So the success of socialization depends really on the establishment of a symmetry between this, this subjective part of consciousness and this objective thing that is fed back into this. And when anomy hits, it breaks down because it destabilizes the symmetry between the objective and the embassy.
both the demonstrators during the weekend and the authorities now in their response. What are they trying to do? They're trying to overcome this anomie, right? There is a race to give it a meaning. It's it, it, these anomic phenomena where they, they, there will be constant reference to a new nominalization. So going back to the origin, how we go to the order, of course, with some coherent sense of history, not history as a set of uh, past events, but history as a meaningful sequence, past, present, and future. And the problem with this is that this is very vulnerable to empirical disconfirmation, of course. And now, yeah. you know, there is a chink in the armor um, after these events, no matter what happens. But we know what happens. We know already what the reaction is. And the reaction, number one, is information, scrub, filter, uh, control, delete. Even it's famously someone yesterday said, when the Chinese people are watching World Cup right now, they're watching it a couple of seconds or maybe a minute later so that they're scrubbing off the pictures from the stand. So you cannot yes. see the people, the audience, the, the fans without masks enjoying themselves in Qatar. So that this is what it is. That's, that's obvious because the regime is never sufficiently confident of its own political philosophy for information to free, freely flow in the in the market for information, right? So, of course, that's that's an obvious thing. Now, what happens next? Let me come back to the three pillars of a revolt. First, self-interest. Secondly, systemic issues, triggered and out, depending on the atmosphere of opening. And then finally, this catalyst, this catalyst that brings anomie and, and eventually affects the, the, second, the second pillar. The Communist Party will use stick and carrots. Stick and carrots, not just a stick. So they will do everything to crack down on the second. They're going to crack down very harsh on that spillover to systemic issues. Xiaotai, step down. That's not allowed. That's not allowed. Say, yo, freedom, that's not allowed. These are words that are not allowed. These are words that you won't find on the internet. So that's gone. That's a crackdown. But then they will try to legitimize partly the self-interest issues and the catalytic event itself. By showing responsiveness this morning, the, the, the authorities, health authorities came and saying we should be more responsive. Of course, the, uh, the authorities in the regions, they should apply. Xi Jinping thought much better. And by the way, they are responsible for yeah. what happened. Never the emperor. So there's old saying in, in Chinese, so the sky is tall and the emperor is far away. There's always scapegoats. <laughs> One of the reasons why the the local authorities were really so much so risk averse because they know that their heads will roll. Their heads will roll square another. So now we have those scapegoats. And so blame the officials, show some responsiveness, at least in terms of the language employed, and crack down really harshly. You don't need tanks anymore, unlike in nineteen eighty-nine. What you do need uh, is of course a lot of control facial recognition and finding all of those, uh, those ringleaders, let's call them like this, leaders of the, of the students and, and so on. Beyond that, there's this race towards nominalization. What, what can the party offer? Some aspiration it has to offer for, for the immediate future. And of course, part of this is, you know, if you just stick to us, we'll vanquish eventually this epidemic and there will be a beautiful world. However, the color of this beauty is not necessarily rosy because 
Xi Jinping during the party congress adopted a slightly different language. The main term he used was femdo, femdo, struggle. He relishes in struggle. He relishes in the beauty of struggle. Actually, from the from the purely psychological perspective, he's not wrong, right? Zygmunt Bauman spoke about it, is that happiness is not sitting with the cocktail on the beach after everything happened, but overcoming different hurdles on the way. So he's not wrong, but this is not very aspirational for young students, right? right. They, they don't want to see the world as feng though, especially now that there are no jobs and no prospects and, and the economies and, and status. And you can't have the, the personal freedom because after 89, there was no political freedom, but there was significant personal freedom, freedom to travel, freedom to get rich to some extent. Uh, that is, that seems to a large extent now uh, very limited. So there's, there, there is that. And of course the happy war unification, you know, killing 23 million people in Taiwan, that's the ultimate happiness that will eventually come. And in the meantime, let's blame the foreigners. So that is very, very predictable. That is predictable because historically, a lot of um, bottom-up students' movements in China were essentially anti-foreign. It goes mm. back be before communist history. So in 1919, the Wu made a fourth movement. Uh, that was the movement against the Versailles Treaty that decided to give Shandong Peninsula, which previously was under German administration to Japan, rather than returning it to Chinese, the Chinese authorities. And that of course, that generated a lot of, uh, a lot of discontent among elites, young elite students. Chinese Communist Party actually used this, this as part of its own mythology, although this is completely uh, harebrained. The, the, then though you had in 1930s, repeated students' movements against Japan, against Japanese activity first in Manchuria, then in China proper, against the war, or were nationalistic movements, and they were again used in the mid to late 40s during the conflict between Guomindang and the Chinese Communist Party. But originally, there were grievances against the government, the KMT government in, in Nanjing, and then slowly they've been infiltrated by the communists, which painted Guomindang as agents of America. So this, this became, those, those movements became anti-American. This was not the case uh, of the 1980s students' uh, movements in, in revolts in, in China, in communist China. But there is a certain tradition of nationalism. So Cheng Wenming, who's the head of, or was the head of the spy uh, organization under, under the Chinese Communist Party, he spoke at the Central Planning and Political Action Committee uh, this morning and saying these are foreign actors. The foreign actors, of course, instigated this. How familiar are you hear it in Russia, you hear it in Iran, and now you hear it in China as well. So there's foreign actors led by the U.S., I assume. Obviously, although someone on internet, on Chinese internet, was, was laughing and say, oh, I know these foreign actors. It's Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, Vladimir Lenin, and Joseph Stalin. Yes, I saw this. Yeah, that's very, that's very bad. Let's not forget. I mean, Jerome Frank wrote about it very well. Um, the sense of helplessness that often happens in the state of enemy and, and, and personal significance can be overcome by, by the feeling of being part of something larger, of a larger group. And of course, when it's done in a way that's, that eludes the controls of the, you know, overwhelmingly omniscient 
Communist Party, as it did over the weekend, that's a threat. So we have to organize some idea of we, we, woman, first person, plural. And of course, us, the nation surrounded by those foreign enemies is a very useful uh, vehicle for that. So those individuals can then project themselves and their, their own weaknesses to self-actualization of the group that is represented by CCP. And of course, CCP will protect them against, against the foreigners. Much of the COVID narrative in China about COVID coming from America or Italy or Australia or somewhere else um, also kind of coalesces around these themes of the very inimical um, foreigners that we have to, we have to combat. Sort of happened now in the U.S. too, by the way. In the U.S.? Well, you know, it was the China virus. There was a... There was, was a, a China virus, by the way. Right. It was, but and it was used as, a, uh, as, a, as something more than that. It was weaponizing it. Or at least that's my perception. Yeah, I, you know, I don't have a problem with Ebola being called you know, the name of a river in Africa and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. I mean, that's... It's very difficult to remember all the H185, whatever, unless you're a virologist, you're not going to remember all the names of different flus and different, different viruses. It's so much easier to call no, it. No, no, no. It came from Wuhan. If it's right. from Wuhan, you can call it Wuhan. Right. I don't mean just calling it the China virus, but there was, I think, sinister intent, uh, intent in calling it China virus. Uh, I, I'm not in the head of the person who did that, but... I think it's what, what comes from that, that model with the three pillars, there's very little, very little chance in the current environment for these revolts to transmute into something more serious, into a serious threat to this regime. Unfortunately, the same thing can be said about Iran or Russia. We saw demonstrations in, in, against uh, Putin's war earlier this year in Russia. Why? Because they understand what the second pillar actually means. Um, there is no sense of any opening at all. So I think, especially when it comes to students, as I said, much more attuned to, to the, the minute vibes that are coming. I don't think they're going to feel it coming. They might still, as usually young people are, uh, reject the passivity of their fathers who were sufficiently, brutally um, treated 33 years ago. And therefore, you know, young people often turn against the previous generation, say, you didn't do anything for our freedom, we have to do it. So there is an underlying uh, momentum there. There is, as I say, chink in the armor, the fat emperor, wind the pool, is naked. You can't say, okay, Chinese people actually love this system. We've seen that it's not true. Unfortunately, it also is true that many of those people who participated in these events over the weekend will be heavily punished for it. Uh, this was the case really last time in 1989. It didn't happen in 86, 87. These were events triggered by sidelining of Hu Yaobang. Uh, or in 1980, the reason was yet different. In the constitution, in Chinese constitution until 1980, there was this call for... Um, express yourself freely or freely your, your views, uh, debate openly and write large characters. You might have seen, there was actually one uh, poster, four posters hanging from a bridge in Beijing. Um, that's, if, if you know Chinese 
outside of PRC that comes across as very communist thing. That's about so large, large characters. These characters were, of course, in favor of democracy and freedom and against CCP, but that is a style. It's a style because in the 1950s, that's what the communists were doing. And people were technically, according to the constitution, encouraged to do this until Deng Xiaoping uh, got rid of this, offering instead a local level elections. Those local level elections were always controlled by CCP and because of that already very early. In, in Changsha, in Hunan Province University in 1980, there was the first kind of student movement upheaval, even though there were demonstrations in China in 76 when Zhou Enlai died, and in 78, the democracy wall movement, uh, Wei Jingsheng famously participated in that. Um, whether Jiang Zemin death really triggers something more, I don't know. He's not necessarily idealized as uh, as a liberal at all. However, 1990s, which I remember well in China, were the time of certain cosmopolitan width. You know, you could you could travel, you can uh, build JVs with Western companies. Not everybody was just stealing from each other. I think what killed really his legacy was his approach to Falun Gong and destruction of, of, of this movement out of fear that there would be a competing organization competing to CCP in terms of popularity and, and numbers. But overall, it wasn't as despotic a period in Chinese society as it is now. How young people will read that uh, coincidental passing uh, this morning, whether it uh, contributes to the discontent, I don't know. I wouldn't actually come. So I don't see it as yet another catalyst, but we'll see in a week. I may be wrong. Are you suggesting that in China and Iran, these protests will lead to no significant change? So in the longer term, as the generations of leaders change, something might uh, be transformed. There's definitely, we know that there is a ferment in certain areas of higher echelons, especially clerical uh, environment in Iran. In China, less so because of how the party congress ended. So the complete wiping out of any competition to Xi Jinping clique. Mm. Mm. There is no, there is no novelty within communist party. So communist party, new conservatism. So Xin, Bao Shou, Zhou Yi. That's really new, replaced new authoritarianism. Xin Chang Wei, Zhou Yi, that which, which coexisted with more liberal approaches in 1980. So post-1999, we have this movement of incremental opening, but under the central yeah. rule of the party. We've always this tension, you know, how much engagement should the party have in the private business, right? In private, private market. It wasn't very clear until Xi Jinping imposed com uh, CTP committees in, in every single and CTP seats at every single board membership of private companies in China. So there are no really private companies in China as such. When Foxconn, Taiwanese company, and the largest private investor in China, is confronted with strikes and breakouts, but the decisions are made, uh, made together with the local communist party chiefs because it's such an important employer, right? It's not something that the companies itself uh, right. uh, it will, you know, when it loses suddenly 100,000 trillion employees overnight. So there is, since that new conservatism and Wang Huying, who is number three in the standing committee, survived all these purges, even though she's not a technically Xi Jinping person he, from, from his clique, he's a, 
he's a he's an ideologue, a relatively interesting ideologue, at least from what we could read of him before he was member of the Politburo. Uh, he's a he's a stalwart, ideological stalwart of that centralism, and it's unlikely to 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 change in the near term. Interestingly, this system, this, this approach that existed before 1989, gave more freedom for private business. Why? Because they recognized, the ideologue then recognized that by doing this, certain aspects of risk-taking by decision can be uh, dissipated, right? So it's not only us taking decisions, the companies make their own mistakes. Right now, other than those poor CCP officials in the provinces whose heads will be rolling, or being either too rigid or not rigid enough, they can never guess what, which way the wind blows from Beijing. Uh, they are the only scapegoats. But in terms of the economic sphere, uh, this is this is very rigid. So I don't see in what way these products change it unless the pandemic gets out of hand seriously. And that's mm. not impossible, entirely impossible, because we might see very quickly a million deaths and so on. So. Let's let's wait. It's a little early to say, but as a, as a sort of a, a sequel to the events from last weekend, I'll be very surprised if we see something similar under such a police control you know, this coming weekend. So step down is not going to happen. Shatai, uh, it would require uh, some action within elites. Remember last week we discussed that that you need the bottom up and the top down. You need different classes that are involved in, 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 in the protests. It doesn't seem that there's anybody with power within the Communist Party after those purges, mm -hmm. some of them very visible purges, uh, very, very public purges, that there is any, any movement there. Uh, mm -hmm. where, where Xi Jinping will suffer is in terms of his international uh, legitimacy. Don't forget that he came to Bali to be anointed by Biden in, right. in front of the Chinese to see that the American president comes and, and meets with him. It's a very important element of his stature, right? Look, he accepts me as, a, as an emperor. That's a very, that, mm -hmm. that actually, at the symbolic level is, is important. So I don't see any, any contest there. Uh, Jiang Zemin's uh, faction has been completely dismembered even before their big mafioso boss this morning. So I don't. I don't see uh, what the avenue could be, short of again of very very major capitalists. So maybe you know large uh, number of deaths that would be impossible to cover up by the information lockdown. Mm. That could that could potentially change the dynamic in certain parts of the country, but I'm not very optimistic. Okay, let's wrap it up there. 